George Washington, Part 2, History Stories Collection, Washington and Braddock. But these were stirring times in Virginia for an English general. Braddock had come up the Potomac, and soldiers, cannon, and supplies were passing right by the doors of Mount Vernon. Every day, Washington looked upon the king's soldiers and saw the flash of sword and bayonet. How could he keep out of it? General Braddock liked the young Virginian and made him an officer on his staff. Braddock was a brave man, but he had never made war in the, war, in the woods or against Indians. One day, Washington suggested that a long train of heavily loaded wagons would make the march very, very slow. He was thinking of Indians. Braddock only smiled as if to say that a young backwoodsman could not teach him how to fight. Benjamin Franklin, a man from Philadelphia, was also troubled when he thought of how the Indians and French would cut to pieces that long line of troops as they marched through the deep, dark forests. Braddock smiled again and said, These savages may be dangerous to the raw American militia, but it is impossible that they should make any impression on the king's troops. The army, over 2,000 strong, slowly crossed the mountains, and by July had almost reached Fort Duquesne. One day, Colonel's uniform of buff and blue, with a white and scarlet cloak over his shoulders. At his side hung a fine sword. With him rode two aides in uniform, besides two servants. Many an admiring eye was turned toward his, this stately young cavalier. After this journey, he returned to the frontier near Greenway Court and remained there a year or two more. Washington meets his future wife. One day, while on his way to Williamsburg with war dispatches, Washington halted at a plantation to take dinner with a friend. There he was introduced to Mrs. Martha Curtis, a charming young widow of his own age. After dinner, the conversation with her was too interesting for the young officer to see the horses being led back and forth near the window. The horses were stabled again. After supper, Washington was not yet ready to mount. Not until late in the afternoon next day did he mount and ride away with all speed for the capital. On his return, he visited Mrs. Curtis at her own beautiful plantation and did not leave until he had her promise of marriage. Great armies were already gathering. William Pitt, who sent Wolfe to capture Quebec, also ordered General Forbes to ma march against Fort Duquesne. But it was November before the army reached the Ohio. The French and Indians had nearly all gone to fight on the St. Lawrence, and the place was easily captured. It is said that Washington himself ran up the English flag. The fort's name was changed to Fort Pitt. Old Days in Virginia Washington now hastened home to claim his bride. To the wedding came the new royal governor in scarlet and gold, and the king's officers in bright uniforms. There, too, came the great planters, with their wives dressed in the best that the yearly ship could bring from London. The bride ro rode home in a coach drawn by six beautiful horses, while Washington, well-mounted, rode by the side of the coach, attended by many friends on horseback. The hardy settlers of the frontier, grateful to their brave defender, had already elected him to represent them in the House of Burgesses. 
He was proud to take his young wife to the meeting of the Burgesses when the old capital town was at its gayest and when the planters came pouring in to attend the governor's reception. Washington had already taken his seat among the Burgesses when the speaker arose and in a very eloquent speech praised him and presented him the thanks of the house for his gallant deeds as a soldier. Washington was so confused to hear himself so highly praised that when he arose to reply, he could not say a word. Sit down, Mr. Washington, said the speaker. Your modesty is equal to your valor, and that surpasses any language that I possess. Washington took his young bride to Mount Vernon, and there began the life that he enjoyed far more than the life of a soldier. He felt a deep interest in everything on the plantation. Early every morning he visited his stables and his kennel, for he liked horses and dogs very much. He then mounted a horse and rode over his plantation to look at the growing fields of tobacco or wheat or at the work of his slaves. When the king's inspectors in the West Indies and in London saw barrels of flour marked George Washington, Mount Vernon, they left their them pass without examining them, for they were always good. He looked after his own and his wife's plantation so well that in a few years he was one of the richest men in America. But besides such duties, there were many simple pleasures to be enjoyed at Mount Vernon. Here his soldier friends always found a warm welcome. Lord Fairfax and other Virginia gentlemen went down to Mount Vernon now to enjoy a fox chase. Sometimes Mrs. Washington and the with and the ladies rode with dash and courage after the hounds. Now and then boating parties on the wide Potomac were the order of the day. Many times the halls and grounds of Mount Vernon rang with the shouts and laughter of young people. Guests who had come from miles around for George and Martha Washington were young in spirit. The Mutterings of War one day in June, 1765, nearly 1,000 French and Indians swarmed on both sides of the road and from behind the safe cover of trees poured a deadly fire upon Braddock's men. God save the king, cried the British soldiers as they formed in line of battle. Washington urged Braddock to permit the English to take to the trees and fight Indian fashion as the Virginians were doing, but Braddock forced his men to stand and be shot down by the unseen foe. Braddock himself was mortally wounded. Washington had two horses shot under him and his clothes pierced by four bullets. The Br British regulars soon ran madly back upon the soldiers in the rear. They threw away guns and left their cannon and wagons, while the Virginians under Washington kept the Indians back. The British army retreated to Philadelphia, but Washington returned to Virginia, where he received the thanks of the Burgesses. He at once collected troops and hastened into the Shenandoah Valley to protect the settlers from the French and Indians. The next year, 1756, Washington journeyed on horseback to Boston. He wore Washington came back from Williamsburg and told his family and neighbors about the bold resolutions and fiery speech of a rustic-looking member named Patrick Henry. He said that many of the older members opposed Henry. Washington took Henry's side, but his friends, the Fairfaxes, took the king's side in favor of the Stamp Act. When the king put a tax on tea, Washington and many of his neighbors signed an agreement not to buy any more tea of England till the tax was taken off. 
When he heard that Samuel Adams and the Mohawks had thrown the tea into Boston Harbor, he knew that exciting times would soon be at hand. The very next year, the king ordered more soldiers to go to Boston and put in force the Boston Port Bill and other unjust laws. The colonies saw the danger and sent their best men to hold the first Continental Congress at Philadelphia. Virginia sent George Washington, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, and other great men. Washington, however, was not an orator and made no speech in the Congress as others did. He was a man of deeds. His time had not yet come. Many persons were surprised to find him so young. For twenty years before they had heard of his deeds against the French and how he had saved the broken pieces of Braddock's army. A member of Congress declared that if you speak of solid information and of sound judgment, Colonel Washington is unquestionably the greatest man on the floor. The Congress, among other things, resolved to stand by Boston. If General Gage should make war on the, that town, Washington knew what that meant. He was not at home many months before he was busy drilling his brave Virginians, many of whom he had been with him in the French and Indian War. Washington made commander of the American armies. In the last days of April 1775, the news of the fight at Lexington and Concord was spreading rapidly southward. Washington, dressed in the buff and blue uniform of a Virginia and unite the colonies better than any other person in the Union. Before all these words were spoken, Washington, much moved, had left the room. Congress elected him unanimously to be commander-in-chief of its armies. When he accepted the honor, he said, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in this room that I this day declare with utmost sincerity I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington wrote immediately to his wife, You may believe me, my dear Patsy, that so far from seeking this appointment I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. Not only from my own unwillingness to part from you and the family, but from the consciousness of its being a trust too great for my capacity. Great men are often the most modest. Washington was soon on the way to Boston by the very route he had gone nearly twenty years before. But how different the journey! Then he was a Virginia colonial. Now he was the honored commander of all the American armies. Then only a few friends were with him. Now congressmen, citizens of Philadelphia, and great crowds cheered him on the way. Only twenty miles out from Philadelphia they met the news from Bunker Hill. When Washington heard how the Americans faced the British bayonets and twice forced their redcoats to retreat, he exclaimed, The liberties of the country are safe. Through New Jersey he was hailed by the people with delight. A military procession escorted him through New York City, where he appointed that noble general, Phil Schuyler, to take command in New York. The students at Yale gave him a real college welcome, a parade with a band, and student songs. On Cambridge Common, under the famous Harvard Elm, on July 3, 1775, Washington drew his sword and took command of the Continental Army. There was a great task before him. He had to drill the troops, collect cannon from Ticonderoga, which Americans had captured, and get ready to drive the British out of Boston. 
It took all winter to do these things. One night in March 1776, Washington secretly sent some of his best troops to build a fort on Dorchester Heights. The next morning, how the new British general saw Washington's cannon pointing down on his army and ships. He immediately put his army on board and sailed away. This was a victory without a fight. Washington took his army to New York and built a fort on Long Island to protect the city. He was none too quick, for Howe came with 30,000 men and many warships. In the ba battle on Long Island, a part of Washington's army was defeated. General Howe planned to capture the defeated troops next day, but Washington was too shrewd. In the night, he collected all the boats in that region and rowed his army over to New York before the British knew what he was doing. The great British army and fleet took the city, but by the help of a patriotic lady, Mrs. Murray, who entertained General Howe and his officers too long for their own good, all of Washington's regiments got away safely up the Hudson. During the fall of 1776, General Howe tried to get above Washington's army and capture it, but he didn't either, for Washington's troops defeated the British both at Harlem Heights and at White Plains. While at Harlem Heights, Washington felt that he must learn some secrets about the enemy. Nathan Hale, a young officer, volunteered to bring General Washington the information he wanted, but Hale was caught by the British and hanged. I only regret, he said, that I have but one life to lose for my country. Howe then captured back as if to march against Philadelphia and capture Congress. Washington quickly threw a part of his army across the Hudson into New Jersey, but he had to retreat. The British followed in a hot chase across New Jersey. Washington crossed the Delaware and took with him all the boats for many miles up and down the river. The British decided to wait till they could cross on the ice. Some of their generals thought the war was about over and hastened back to New York to spend the Christmas holidays. The people did not know Washington. Those were indeed dark days for the Americans. Hundreds of Washington soldiers had gone home discouraged, and many other faint-hearted Americans thought the cause lost, and were again promising obedience to George III. But the people did not yet know Washington. On Christmas night, with 2,500 picked men, Washington took to his boats and crossed the Delaware in spite of the floating ice. Nine miles away in Trenton lay the Hessians, those soldiers from Hesse Castle in Europe, Cassell in Europe, whom George III had hired to fight his American subjects, because Englishmen refused to fight Americans. On went the little army in spite of the biting cold and the blinding snow. During this fearful night, two men froze to death and many others were numb with cold. Our guns are wet, said an officer. Then use the bayonet, replied Washington. There was a sudden rush of tramping feet and the roar of cannon in the streets. The Hessian general was killed, and one thousand of his men surrendered. There was a strange lot of prisoners. Not one could speak a word of English or cared a thing for George III. No doubt they wished themselves at home on that morning, but the Hessians were not more surprised than the British generals in New York. Cornwallis, the British commander, hurried forward with troops to capture Washington, but rested his army at Trenton. That night, Washington's army stole away, and Cornwallis, 
awoke in the morning to hear the booming of Washington's cannon at Princeton, where Washington was defending another part of the British army. Cornwallis hastened to Princeton. It was too late. Washington was safe among the heights of Morristown, where Cornwallis did not dare attack him. These two victories turned the tide and aroused the Americans. Reinforcements and supplies made Washington's army stronger and more comfortable. The next spring, 1777, General Howe decided to capture Philadelphia, but Washington boldly moved his army across Howe's line and marched. Howe did not want to fight, so he put his army on board his ships, sailed around into the Chesapeake, landed and marched for the rebel capital, as the British called Philadelphia. At Brandywine Creek, south of Philadelphia, Washington faced him. A severe battle was fought. Each side lost about 1,000 men. The Americans slowly retreated. In this battle, Lafayette, a young French nobleman, was wounded. Lafayette, Lafayette had heard in France how the American farmers had beaten the king's regulars at Lexington, and he had made up his mind to go to help them. On his arrival, Congress had made Lafayette a general in the Continental Army. The Winter at Valley Forge After the battle at Brandywine Creek, the British slowly made their way to Philadelphia. Washington took post for the winter at Valley Forge on the Schuylkill River, 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. There in the deep woods, among the hills, and in log huts built by their own hands, the American forces passed a winter so full of suffering that it makes one shudder to read the story. When the army marched into Valley Forge, their route could be traced on the snow by the blood that oozed from their bare, frost-bitten feet. Washington wrote to Congress that nearly 3,000 of his men were barefoot or otherwise naked. A part of their army had no bread for three days, and for two days no meat. Hundreds had no beds, and gladly slept on piles of straw. Others had no blankets and sat up nights before the fire to keep from freezing. Many sickened and died, but in Philadelphia the well-fed British soldiers had a gay season with balls and banquets. Washington grieved over the suffering of his men, but never lost heart. All the long winter, through with the aid of General Steuben, a noble German officer, he drilled his men. In the spring, when the British started back to New York, he gave them such a bayonet charge at Monmouth, New Jersey, 1778. They were glad to escape that night, instead of stopping to rest and bury their dead. The crowning victory at Yorktown. For the next three years, the British Army remained in New York, not daring to come out and attack Washington. Finally, in the summer of 1781, General Lafayette, who had now recovered from his wound and had fought with the Americans at Monmouth, was sent to Virginia by Washington to watch the British Army there. Lafayette sent Washington word that Cornwallis had come up from the Carolinas and had taken post at Yorktown. After receiving more soldiers, Lafayette followed Cornwallis to Yorktown and stationed his army near that place. Washington also got word that a large French war fleet was coming to the coast of Virginia to aid the Americans. This fleet had been sent to aid the Americans by the King of France. Washington also had 6,000 fine French troops under the command of General Rochambeau. This aid 
have been secured through the influence of Lafayette, who had visited his home in France in 1779. Washington now saw his chance. He ordered Lafayette to watch Cornwallis, while he himself took 2,000 ragged Continentals and 4,000 French troops in bright uniforms and slipped away from New York. He was almost in Philadelphia before the British or his own soldiers could guess where he was going. At Yorktown, Washington and his army found both Lafayette and the French fleet keeping watch. Day and night the siege went on amid the roar of cannon. When all was ready, then came the wild charge of the Americans and the French in the face of British cannon and over British breastworks. The outer works were won, and Cornwallis saw that he must surrender. Seven thousand of the king's troops marched out and gave up their arms. The victory at Yorktown made all Americans happy, and they rang bells, fared cannon, built bonfires, and praised Washington and Lafayette. But England was now tired of war, and many of her great men declared in favor of peace, which was soon made in 1783. Washington bids farewell to his officers and to Congress. Washington bade farewell to his brave soldiers with whom he had fought so long. The parting with his officers in Francis Tavern, New York, was a touching scene. With tears in his eyes and with a voice full of tenderness, he embraced each one as he bade him goodbye. It was like the parting of a father from his sons. Washington now journeyed to Annapolis, Maryland, where Congress was then held to give back the authority of commander-in-chief which Congress had bestowed on him eight years before. How unselfish had been the conduct of Washington in refusing pay for his services. How noble was the act of giving up his power over an army which idolized him and which he might have used to make himself king. But he did not think of these things as he hastened to his beautiful Mount Vernon to enjoy Christmas time once more with his loved ones. But what a change had come to Virginia. Eight years before, George III was king over all the thirteen colonies, and Virginia was ruled by one of his governors. Now the people were ruling themselves, and had elected one of Washington's neighbors, Benjamin Harrison, to be their governor. He missed some old friends. Some had died on the field of battle. Others, like Lord Fairfax, had gone back to England, where they could be ruled by George III. Soon visitors began to come, old soldiers, beloved generals, and great statesmen from America, as well as distinguished people from Europe. They all wanted the honor of visiting the man who had led the American armies to victory, but who again was only a Virginia planter. <laughs>